Welcome to another special episode of Becoming a Data Scientist podcast. I'm Renee T. I was lucky enough to be included in a group of podcasters that got to interview data people in the federal government about what they've been up to. I'll link to the others in the show notes. There's definitely some cool stuff going on in our government and some great people doing it. On this podcast, you'll get to meet Dr. Ed Filton, a Princeton computer science professor who's currently serving as Deputy U.S. Chief Technology Officer in the White House. Yes, I got to be on a call with the White House. How cool is that? We're going to talk about the future of artificial intelligence, and he'll give us some insight about his views and the U.S. government's view of the latest applications of AI and where we're headed from here. So without further ado, let's meet Dr. Ed Felton. Hi, Ed. Hi, how are you? Good. Well, today we're going to talk about the future of AI and its impact on America. So first, before we launch into that, I want to get your opinion on what is artificial intelligence. So what comes to mind when you think of artificial intelligence, and what are some key examples of big impact applications that either already exist today or are just around the corner? Well, one of the interesting things about AI is that it doesn't have a super precise definition. Um, it's really kind of defined informally by uh, as computers or software doing things that we think of as requiring intelligence. And so that's kind of a moving target in the sense that once we get used to computers doing something, we may not think that they require a lot of intelligence. Um, but really, I think that the high-impact applications that we've seen in recent years are in things like image recognition and language translation, things like navigation and also the combination of those sorts of capabilities together to create capabilities like uh, automated driving. Um, and I think a lot of the excitement in AI is because there's been really rapid progress in recent years against some of these tasks. When I first was studying back in, uh, well, back in the previous century, mm -hmm. um, you know, we, we looked at things like image recognition and we thought that the ability of a computer to recognize a dog in a photo or to tell whether a photo had a dog or a cat in it, that that was way off far in the future, that that was a thing that humans just knew how to do instinctively, but we didn't have a clue how to make computers do it. And nowadays, mm -hmm. computers can not only tell dog versus cat, they can tell you which breed of dog and how many. So there's been huge progress, you know, even over the last 10 years at some of these tasks, and that's what's driven a lot of the excitement about AI. Yeah, that was so incredible. So you mentioned your studies. Let's talk about your background. When did you first get interested in machine learning and AI? Uh, well, I went to college back in the 80s. Um, and back then, um, was it, I was interested in a lot of the different things that you could do with computers. And uh, so I ended up working in a research lab and worked on some topics related to AI. I did some work on computer chess. I did some work on image recognition using neural nets back in the 80s um, and wrote a couple papers about that. Uh, but then kind of put AI machine learning uh, type of things aside and went off and did other, other things. Um, I became ultimately a computer science academic. I got a, a job at Princeton where I've taught for about 20 years. Um, with a couple of short breaks, including the one I'm on now to work at the White House. And uh, it, it's only really in the last couple of years that I've come back around to interest in and attention to AI and machine learning. Um, but I think that's something 
that recent interest is something that a lot of people in the field ha have gotten um, because there's just so much more optimism about where the field is going. <laughs> That's funny that you talked about taking a break from academia to work at the White House. <laughs> but how, what was that path like? What, what, how did you get from being a professor to being deputy CTO at the White House? Well, that also, I mean, like a lot of things, I guess, in my career, it, it was a uh, uh, it was a curvy path. Um, I, I over time, I, I got interested in um, computer security and privacy, and that was the main my main specialty as a researcher and teacher um, by the late '90s. And that's an area that naturally touches on public policy questions because security is all about keeping bad things from happening or trying to channel behavior in directions that uh, you think, think are beneficial. And um, uh, policy is trying to do a lot of the same things. So that was one of the connections. The other connection was that um, that was a period when there got to be a lot of concern among policymakers about security and hacking and so on, and uh, you had laws being written and passed into law that um, uh, that were designed with good intentions to try to keep people from doing uh, harmful things and carrying out attacks and so on, but that sometimes um, had side effects that influenced security research and that influenced legitimate behavior by, um, by computer scientists. And so I got interested in policy originally just as a way of making sure that the stuff I was doing in the lab for legitimate reasons didn't get made illegal. Uh, mm -hmm. But then over time I got, you know, I. I started to realize that um, there was a lot going on there, that more and more um, the things that uh, technology was doing were going to get entangled with policy questions. And so I started to get more interested in that. And, um, uh, and so I started to write about and, uh, and study and speak about, uh, uh, about technology and policy. I started writing a blog called Freedom to Tinker back in uh, about 15 years ago that focused on that topic. Uh, and so over time, I kind of became someone who wore two hats, one as a computer scientist and the other as a person involved in policy. Uh, and then about uh, five or six years ago, um, I got offered a position at the Federal Trade Commission as their first chief technologist. And so I went there and I did that for a year and a half and came back to uh, become an academic again at Princeton. And uh, then about a year and a half ago, um, in, well, I guess in May of 20. 15, um, I, um, it was uh, getting to be time for me to take some time off to take a sabbatical or something, and, um, um, and uh, in a conversation with someone who worked at the White House, it uh, came up that there might be an opportunity, and that's what really got me connected to it. Um, so, you know, so I got to work on issues um, at the White House that I've worked on as an academic and before. Um, but it was a little bit unexpected to have the opportunity to, to come in and do this. Yeah, so what was that experience like? Like when you showed up, what was the, the mission given to you by President Obama, and what, what's your role in the team there? Yeah, so I'm part of the, the team in the U.S. Chief Technology Officer's Office, um, which is in the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy. It's a team of about 20-plus people, and basically our mission overall is to give advice to the president and his senior advisors about technology and how it impacts policy, how to help the government get better at doing technology things and, and how to look ahead to help the government look ahead to the future. Um, and so uh, that's a big job. There's a lot of different aspects, and we've got a great team of people doing a lot of things. But 
what felt to me turned out to be a bunch of issues around cybersecurity and encryption and other issues like that, some issues around regulation um, related to technology, like things having to do with uh, self-driving cars and so on, uh, and also the, uh, the, the piece about uh, AI and machine learning. And so um, I was tasked to help stand up a, a, a team of people to, to work on that issue and to help the government get smarter about it and to help try to upgrade the public discussion about it. And so that's what led to um, a bunch of public conferences that we ran and then ultimately the two reports that we released. Yeah, let's talk about those reports. So back in October, um, the White House OSTP re released a report called Preparing for the Future of Artificial Intelligence, which dis discusses the current state of AI, its existing and potential applications, and the questions that are raised for society and public policy by progress in AI, as well as some other recommendations and actions that can be taken by the government. So let's talk about that. Um, there's some applications mentioned in that report that benefit the American public. So what are some of your favorite promising applications of AI that really help people? Well, you, you can kind of break it down into applications that um, are going to be a big deal in terms of um, impact on things like saving lives and improving health uh, versus things that are just cool. Um, so in the impact and life-saving area, um, I would include things like uh, applications of AI in medicine and healthcare. Um, there's, I think, a big role to play in things like precision medicine, which is basically the idea of figuring out how to provide treatments and diagnosis that is customized to your particular situation. So mm -hmm. uh, rather than the traditional mode in medicine has kind of been to figure out what is the best treatment for people on average, uh, but nowadays where we can know a lot about people and where it is feasible to say, sequence someone's entire genome, uh, you can start to say, well, this person has a particular kind, has certain features in their genome, and for people like that, this kind of treatment makes more sense, uh, mm -hmm. and so on. And you can start to customize and target your treatments and responses much more precisely. And that leads to, that can lead to uh, better results in all kinds of ways. So I think that's a really exciting kind of thing. Um, we heard also, it, it, staying on healthcare in, some of the public events we ran, we, we heard about research being done to try to reduce hospital-borne infections or to try to uh, generally uh, deal proactively with the possibility of side effects or infections for people who uh, had had very serious medical treatments. Uh, mm -hmm. So that includes things like people with severe combat wounds or people who have had major surgery. Um, by using AI, uh, doctors can predict or spot more quickly that a patient is, um, is likely to uh, or seems to be developing a very serious infection. And they can then, then get ahead of that infection and treat it more quickly and more aggressively. And that leads to better outcomes, faster healing, saving money, and all of those good things. So there's lots of great examples in healthcare and in lots of other fields where you're talking about serious impact on saving lives um, and, and reducing pain and suffering. Um, there's also things that I think are just cool and beneficial in other ways. And my favorite example there um, is um, a team of researchers who applied image recognition to photos of wildlife. Mm -hmm. So 
All over Africa, for example, there are parks where people can go and look at wildlife, where people can go out in the um, go out in, in uh, uh, go out in the world and uh, and see wildlife. Um, and so you have an awful lot of photos being taken that show wildlife, and those photos are often time stamped and location stamped. Um, well, that's a great resource that researchers can use. And so um, a, a team of researchers um, uh, built a system which could not only uh, ingest these photos, but also do image recognition on them to recognize uh, what are the animals that are in a particular photo, and even to be able to recognize individual animals. You could recognize, they could recognize individual zebras by the, uh, by the shape of their stripes or individual giraffes by the <laughs> pattern of spots or elephants by the shape of their ears or tail and so on. Um, and so by doing this and then by mining large volumes of photos that exist um, and are tagged, they could build a big database about animal migrations and animal population growth and changes and so on far beyond what was possible before. That's a great application of AI to do something that uh, really wasn't even possible before. So, um, you know, those are, those are some examples. We just heard example after example of people doing amazing things with this technology. Yeah, I think there's a similar project from the, the people that made Galaxy Zoo where they were using camera traps and having uh, humans label the different pictures so that they could eventually apply the, the same thing to, the, to figure out um, where the herds of animals were and how they were moving through the park. So it's really incredible. So we've yeah, heard about these positives. Yeah, mm -hmm. we've heard about all these positive things. And then, of course, there's a flip side. And people will always say for every positive application of AI, there's also some scary concerns either with security or with bias or, you know, there's always the question about the Terminator scenario. <laughs> but what yeah. do you think are some of the biggest challenges in terms of making sure that people aren't harmed by AI? Sure. Um, I mean, there's a bunch of things that people think about. Um, uh, we just recently issued a report about the economic impact of AI. That was our second AI report. Mm -hmm. uh, and people talk a lot about what is the impact on jobs, what is the impact on the economy. Um, and the bottom line there that emerged after a lot of analysis by um, some of the excellent economists here in the White House um, and, and by some others was that um, AI is going to do a bunch of things to the economy. One of the things it's going to do is likely to do is to create a lot of growth and increase productivity. And that makes the economic pie bigger, which is important. Um, but the other thing it is likely to do is to change the nature of work. AI will be able to automate some of the tasks that people do in the workplace. And so that means what it is that well, the, the skills that are demanded by, by the job market from workers uh, are going to change. And if you get into a situation where there's a mismatch between what are the skills that the job market demands and what are the skills that workers actually have, uh, then you could get into trouble. Mm -hmm. um, so if that starts to develop, um, th that the change in technology is not destiny. There are things that we as a society and that the government can do to, uh, to deal with that and to try to mitigate the effects. And that includes things like thinking hard about how we educate kids to make sure that they are educated for the job market that they're actually going to be in. Um, it includes things like training and retraining programs for adults so that people can get the skills they need. And it also includes things like making sure that uh, programs like unemployment insurance 
and the government programs that help match up people with, with jobs or give them information about where the jobs are, making sure that those programs are as effective as, uh, as they need to be. Uh, so that's part of it is the, is the jobs piece. Um, mm -hmm. You mentioned concerns about bias and discrimination, um, and um, that's also an issue where I think there's a lot of work to do. Uh, and of course, those are issues where um, the historical systems in which people were making the decisions have been far from perfect. Um, you know, bias and discrimination has been with us for a long time, and it's been a long struggle that is far from over to try to uh, to try to uh, to eliminate that and get to a situation where people are really on a, on a level playing field. Um, yeah, I but wrote an article. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I wrote an article about um, a challenge to data scientists about some of these biases in data collection and machine learning algorithms, and some of my listeners will be familiar with that. So can we discuss how can we as developers, um, build, you know, learn to develop these machine learning algorithms and make sure we're not incorporating bias into these tools? Sure. Um, well, the starting point is to do what um, to do what uh, your listeners have been doing, in, which is to um, which is to recognize that this is an issue, that this is a problem, and that as professionals, as practitioners, people need to be alert for the possibility that bias may creep into what they're doing. Mm -hmm. um, Right, and of course, you know, there's some people out there, unfortunately, who um, are perfectly fine and happy to produce biased results or may even be trying to do that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, th there's also a large number of people and, um, who, um, who are doing work where there's a danger that bias will creep in against their, against their will or against their desire. And, you know, and that's really, those are really the folks that um, I think are in the best position to, um, uh, to uh, to get us to a place where the practice and results are better. Um, mm -hmm. It starts with recognizing that this is a risk and with understanding the different ways in which bias can creep in. Right. Um, and there's a bunch of ways that that can happen. Um, it can happen because the input data that you have that you're using, let's say, to train a model, um, are, that the data set is not representative of the whole population. Mm -hmm. um, it can be that what you're trying to do is you're trying to train a system to replicate past decisions. Um, you know, that's the kind of thing that has sometimes been done for hiring or for things like admissions to schools, colleges or schools, where you look at the decisions that have been made by, let's say, your admissions or hiring officers in the past, and you try to train a model that will make decisions the way the people have made them in the past. Um, and the problem there, of course, is that if the people in the past made decisions that were biased, then, um, then what you're really doing is instructing your model to do the exact same thing. And right. you will get a model that's likely to be biased if you tell it to reproduce the past decisions. Mm -hmm. um, and actually, I work at a company that we work with exactly that. Um, we've built models looking at admissions um, at universities. And there's some techniques like collinearity where you can look at features like race or gender in the data, make sure you're not inputting that into the model itself, but then also make sure you're not inputting any proxies for that data that could go into the model to drive decisions. And we can test the models um, to make sure that they perform well with different demographic groups and then they're not treating them differently. Um, so can we expect developers to be responsible or do you think there are going to be, you know, regulations and things like that put in place that the government will have to enforce? 
Well, I think, I think developers are going to have to be responsible because developers will always be the first line of defense against this kind of, against this kind of issue. And, mm -hmm. um, and I think it's key that, um, that obviously we need to start with having good intentions and then we need to start with developing skills to recognize how things could be going wrong, but then getting on to the kind of thing you were talking about where uh, we have tools and methods that we can use when we, when, when we recognize that there could be a problem developing, what are the tools we can use to make sure that we are not introducing proxies for some uh, feature that we um, don't want to use or making sure that we understand what is the impact of including some feature or building the model in a certain way. Um, there are also methods, for example, that try to compensate for biases in the data. Mm -hmm. um, and that starts with things as simple as um, as putting more weight on data items that uh, correspond to underrepresented groups, uh, but those things get more and more sophisticated. Uh, there's, you know, the research community is constantly pushing the uh, that boundary forward in terms of understanding what the methods are. Mm -hmm. um, and ideally, over time, those methods get built into the sort of tools that pe tool sets that people use. So right. that it becomes a standard feature and it becomes something that you learn in school, well, this is how you do it. Um, so that's kind of the first line of defense is professionals doing that. And, uh, you know, we've talked about, we, the White House, have talked about the importance of, of, of teaching ethics, of having that be part of the educational experience in data science and computer science, and also of professional societies and other groups of practitioners uh, making sure that their members understand the importance of what's going on. Um, but when, thing, when that doesn't work, or if you have people who are people or organizations who are behaving recklessly or behaving in ways that are even, um, uh, that are even intentionally biased, um, that it, then, um, uh, then regulation starts to look like a, uh, uh, like a better idea. Um, and there are already some sectors, there are already some kinds of decisions where uh, regulations exist. Um, decisions related to things like employment or credit and so on, there are laws and regulations that exist. And I'm not a lawyer, so I'm not gonna tell you how those work. Um, but in cases where regulations exist, you don't get a free pass because you're using data science or using an algorithm. You still have to comply with uh, whatever it is that the law says you have to do. So there may be a legal obligation that somebody has because um, that already exists. Um, and um, what the implications of that are in making sure that those regulations are updated so that they have clear meaning and that they're doing the work that they are supposed to be doing and not getting in the way of legitimate practice. That, that's a, a challenge for government and government agencies. And that's something we've written about in some of the AI reports. Um, yeah. As far as like regulation just of data science broadly so that like every data scientist get, has their behavior regulated at, on a routine basis, mm -hmm. that's not something I see as at all likely. Um, I don't think at this point um, there is anywhere near enough knowledge to understand whether that would be a good idea or how to do it. Mm -hmm. So um, it's really just um, I think regulation in those sectors where it already exists plus a lot of professional responsibility that's needed. Right. And you mentioned your other report, which was focused on um, artificial intelligence and the economy and jobs. Um, what kind of jobs will AI create? What are the new things on the horizon that people can be trained for? 
Well, there's a few different kinds of things. Um, one of the important things to recognize about this is that um, is that if AI is increasing productivity, if it's creating economic growth, that that economic growth and productivity, that puts more wealth into the economy and that leads to more consumption, more spending, and that generates jobs all through the economy. So that's actually a pretty important effect. Mm -hmm. um, that is, you know, that's someone going out to dinner an extra time or going out for a more expensive dinner, taking an extra trip. Um, there's a lot of ways in which people spend money if they have it. And so if you're creating wealth, and if, especially if that wealth is spread broadly, if new wealth is spread broadly across the community, you get more spending and that grows the economy. There's, so there's a lot of indirect job creation that, um, that can happen that way. Mm -hmm. um, another thing that AI can do is one, one of the questions that economists ask about the effect of AI is for a particular job or a particular thing someone does, uh, is AI a substitute or a complement to that task? Substitute means that AI will do it instead of a person. A complement means that AI makes a person better at that task. Mm -hmm. So, um, and if you're in a job where AI is a complement, well, you're likely to have more people doing that job because um, AI makes people better at it. And when people are better at something, generally there's more demand for people doing that thing. So there's certain kinds of jobs where AI is a complement. And it's, there's obvious things like being a data scientist, for example. There's going to be more data scientist jobs for sure. Um, yeah, so the people listening here are definitely in a good area. This, I mean, you could you can tell there's there's definitely yep. a boom coming with the speed of development of all these tools and applications of artificial intelligence. Exactly, but there's other kinds of jobs that you might not expect um, that where people can become more productive um, because AI comes along. One of the examples that uh, we that we talked that we talked about in the report is building inspectors. Building inspectors, basically, they'll inspect a building, they inspect buildings, they write up reports and do paperwork, and then uh -huh. they drive from site to site, mm -hmm. right? And um, if the driving part of that can be automated, then the building inspector will be able to spend more of their time doing the part of their job where they actually apply their talents and have unique value, and that is the inspecting and the reporting and, uh, and so on. So instead of spending their time driving, um, they will be able to spend more time, let's say, doing the paperwork or doing management kind of stuff while they're tra being transported from place to place, and that will allow them to be more productive. So there's lots of jobs where there are aspects of the job that are, involve relatively lower skill that can be done by AI, and therefore it frees the person to do the high-value, high-leverage parts of the job, and therefore be more productive at what they're doing. Yeah, that's um, really interesting. Right, and so you expect to have more of those sorts of jobs as well. Um, and then there's particular types of jobs that have to do with developing AI, that have to do with managing, repairing, um, and uh, generally uh, the sort of care and feeding of the technology as it operates. And a lot of those, and we expect jobs to be created there as well. Yeah, and since you also have a background in cybersecurity, um, what can we think about in terms of making sure that um, AI is built in a way that doesn't um, violate people's security and, and doesn't put our data at risk? Or what are some other, um, you know, topics that are good for people to read into if they're, they're studying to work in AI? I think the cybersecurity issues are really interesting. Um, and they operate on multiple dimensions. One is that 
AI systems tend to uh, uh, tend to lead to people uh, collecting and using data a lot more. If you've got more data sitting around, the data is maybe kept longer and the data is more extensive. Um, now you have a higher exposure, higher risk for the people who that data is about, should it be leaked. Um, and that means that the stakes for cybersecurity, the stakes for in terms of um, a company or a, or a practitioner protecting the data they have go up. So you have a heightened need for cybersecurity um, in that case. Mm -hmm. um, there's also uh, an, another aspect of this is that as AI systems get more complicated, um, that there may be, and, and as more decisions and more the operation of more stuff in the world is hooked up to AI systems, um, you may also have higher stakes. Um, if you have a car that's driven by a machine, um, mm -hmm. now you need to worry about what happens if someone gets control of, if someone is able to change the control algorithms, for example. Yeah. Um, or if you have Internet uh, an Internet of Things, right. So you mm -hmm. have all these supposedly smart devices that are in your house and all over the place, um, and they need to be defended. That's part of your security perimeter, whereas, you know, like now, you might have a light bulb in your house that is, um, that is connected to the Internet and, um, um, and is capable of, um, at least in principle, of harboring malware. Um, and that wasn't, just wasn't a thing before, right? Light bulbs, you didn't mm -hmm. have to worry about somebody um, establishing, um, putting malware into your light bulbs. Mm -hmm. um, and so, um, you know, the perimeter we have to defend is, gone, is a lot larger and the stakes are higher. Um, and that's that's part of it. The the other side of that coin is the use of AI to try to protect systems. Right. So, right. One of the reasons that cybersecurity security is hard is that uh, systems tend to have a lot of bugs, and it's really hard to find them. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, there's a lot of excitement around work that uh, in which people try to use AI to help find and fix potential problems in systems. Um, and and that's a thing you, that's a capability that we have, but you need to have an expert analyst or an expert programmer or security expert, and they need to grovel over the code, you know, in a lot of detail and spend a lot of time um, to, uh, to make sure that everything is okay. If we can somehow automate that kind of due diligence process that developers and security experts do over code, um, if we can automate that so that we could do it at a large scale and at a much lower cost, um, then we can improve the security of a lot of things. And we can give sort of ordinary garden variety devices and software the level of security assurance that we now provide only for the most critical systems. Uh, and that would yeah. be a huge win. Right? The other thing we might be able yeah, the other thing we might be able to do is if uh, is to use AI as sort of a in more of a system administrator role. So that you have the ability to reconfigure, to shut things off, and to react to an attack when it happens at machine speed instead of human speed. Yeah, it's like the way that artificial intelligence now um, catches fraud on um, credit cards. So you might go out of town and you get a call from your bank because that behavior is a change. If they say, well, you don't normally use your credit card in Florida, yeah. but you're the, your card's being used there now. Is that you? Um, that'll be interesting to see the future of that for other um, Internet of Things objects, so, you know, your refrigerator is being used in a way that isn't typical for you. <laughs> it's someone else right. in your house. <laughs> exactly. Your thermostat's doing weird things. Um, <laughs> it looks like it's trying to freeze your pipes. 
yeah. while you're away or, or whatever it is. Um, right. Uh, this idea of sort of AI being on watch to help protect you and then to react if something starts going wrong. Um, there's a lot of opportunities there, and we haven't, you know, the people have really only started to think about what is possible. Yeah, and this is such an exciting area to get into. And I think President Obama has seemed to put a, a, a big focus on government transparency. Um, there have been a lot of data sets released to the public that weren't available before. So what are some ways that our listeners can get involved in working with this data from the government um, in a way that can benefit our society? Well, there is, as you said, there's a ton of data sets. There are hundreds of thousands of data sets that have been opened by um, by the federal government. Um, and you can go to data.gov, for example, to uh, uh, as a starting point for looking at a lot of these data sets. Uh, and some of these some of these data sets are things that have been used for a long time um, with a big um, commercial impact. Uh, things like weather data, for example. That's a great example where government has gathered large amounts of data and commercial entities have used it for forecasting and other purposes. And there's a whole sector that uh, really was born because of the existence of this government data. But then there are lots of just lots of different government data sets, um, some of which are not used all that much. Uh, I think there's a, a lot, there have to be a lot of hidden treasures in, uh, uh, in the government's open data sets, um, including um, it, and that includes some really big things and some small things. Um, it's a great place to explore. It's a great place to find data sets to do good things. Um, and you can find data sets that are about your community and, uh, and try to find ways to make that information accessible to people. Because uh, in a lot of cases, uh, and, and this is partly the philosophy of government open data, is to make the data available to developers and then let the creativity of developers figure out what they can do with it. And because the government is the government and its job is to just stimulate creativity, uh, those data sets are freely available and you can take them and you can use them really for any legitimate purpose you have. So it's a great source of data and a great opportunity to, uh, to look for things to do. Yeah, definitely. So what's next for you, Ed? Do you just hand over the keys to your office on January 20th and go on vacation? <laughs> uh, well, except for the vacation part, yes. Um, <laughs> the, uh, uh, so, you know, so we're coming up to the end of the, uh, of the administration, and, uh, and we, you know, we understood really from sort of the beginning of, most of us understood from the beginning of our time of service that uh, that that would be, uh, that at that point we would be handing over the, uh, handing the baton to, uh, to a new team. Uh, and so that's what we're going to do in terms of our work, um, in terms of our work here. Um, when that happens, I'm going to turn back into an academic. I'll be writing and teaching again, and, uh, um, and I'll really miss the work we did here because um, we have such a great team of people, and um, I'm really proud of, the work, of, of what th this team has been able to do. Um, but I'll also enjoy being a private citizen again and uh, getting back to having my hands um, on a keyboard more um, working with code and data, and um, uh, which has been something I've sort of missed in, in this role. <laughs> yeah, I can understand that. So how can people find you online and, and find all this work that you've done? Um, well, f um, for finding the work that, um, that we've done here at the White House, um, you, um, uh, you, can, you can just search for things like White House artificial intelligence if you want to find out about the uh, 
the AI things that that we've done. Um, there's and I'll a also link we, to it in the show notes. Excellent. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a report that we did in October about AI in um, uh, in public policy and the public generally, and one that we did um, uh, just recently in December um, about AI in the economy. Um, but you can also see a lot of the good work that our team has done. Um, in uh, If you go to the Office of Science and Technology Policy um, or you look at the White House blog, you can see all kinds of things that are done in government, but there's a lot of good work on data science. You can look up the uh, uh, the team data. Uh, DJ Patil is the chief data scientist at uh, mm-hmm. in the U.S. government here at the White House, and uh, uh, he's a he's a member of our CTO team. and uh, uh, And there's a whole a crew of data science folks who uh, who are in the White House, and then a growing group of data science people across the government. So uh, if people look for data science in the White House or data science in government agencies, you can also find that work. Um, so there's a lot of sources out there. Me personally, if you want to find me, um, you can uh, you can look for my uh, academic page at Princeton University in the computer science department. Mm-hmm. Um, you can, or you can search for me, um, Ed Felton, F-E-L-T-E-N. Um, that's probably the most uh, reliable way to find me. What you'll find is that I have not, um, uh, I haven't been very active in um, uh, in terms of writing or public speaking or social media. Um, during my time at the White House, what I've done has been in my official capacity. Mm-hmm. My official Twitter account is Ed Felton 44, mm-hmm. 44 for, of course, the 44th president who I work for. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, on my personal Twitter account, where I'll become active again after I leave government, is just Ed Felton. Okay, great. We'll link to all of that. So I'd really like to thank you, Ed, for this enlightening conversation about how you and the federal government sees the future of artificial intelligence. And those of us working in this area have a lot to think about and a lot to learn, and I really appreciate you helping us do that. Thanks. I enjoyed it. All right. Thank you so much. Bye. Sure. Bye. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. I sure did, and I'll be sharing the reports we discussed on my blog for the show notes and on Twitter. This was a special episode, and we'll be back to the regular Becoming a Data Scientist interview episodes and Learning Club activities very soon. The first episode of Season 2 has already been recorded and should be available for you to watch or listen to in the next two weeks or so. Then we'll have regular interviews every couple weeks like we did in Season 1. I'm really excited to be back. If you've been listening for a while, you know that I have several websites, Becoming a Data Scientist blog, the Data Science Learning Club, Data SciGuide, Jobs for New Data Scientists, and this year I hope to put on both a small conference and a data science fair. However, I work full-time and I can't do all of this alone, so I'm hiring people to help edit the podcast, keep the websites up to date, and handle the technical stuff behind running these websites I made so I can instead focus on creating new content like these interviews. So if you want to support what I do and help me get this assistance, please check out my Patreon campaign at patreon.com, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com, slash becomingdatasci. It's also linked for my Twitter profile at becomingdatasci. Even committing a dollar a month helps, and in exchange, you'll not only get more great content, but also a newsletter summarizing what we're up to and my favorite data science articles and resources. So again, that's patreon.com slash becomingdatasci.
I really, really appreciate all of you who are already chipping in, and you'll get shout-outs on the first episode of Season 2 of Becoming a Data Scientist podcast, which is coming soon. See you then!